welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Not with me. Uh, I don't appear in this episode. Uh, it's Keith and William concluding their coverage of Fright Fest Glasgow with an interview with the two directors of Freaks. Now, in the interview, uh, there is mention of free copies of Shotlister. And we ran a competition. We gave away five copies of Shotlister to five lucky listeners. Now that competition is closed. So just in case you're listening to this and wondering, hmm, did they give it away or what happened? Uh, we had a competition. Uh, we give away five copies. It's done. Uh, I will be back for the uh, next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Uh, we actually return to our old format, believe it or not. Uh, you will have to join us on the next episode to find out who it is. But in the meantime, enjoy the interview and I hand it over to Keith. Welcome to this special interview. I'm Keith Isles and I'm William McLaughlin. And we're both independent filmmakers representing Movie Heaven, Movie Hell and Premiere Scene. Movie Heaven, Movie Hell is a podcast that focuses on genre films and related media. And Premiere Scene covers red carpet news and interviews, as well as special features. Um, myself and William were lucky enough last weekend to be at Fright Fest Glasgow. And we're really pleased to welcome uh, some special guests on, um, calling us from the other side of the pond. We have co-writer directors of the film sci-fi thriller Freaks. Uh, we have Zach Liposky and Adam B. Stein. Uh, welcome, guys. Hey. Hi there. Happy to be here. So what did you think of uh, Glasgow and Fright Fest? <laughs> well, I was the lucky one who was able to uh, to get to go to, uh, Scotland. I was the, it was the first time I've ever been to Scotland. Um, so that was pretty cool. It was a great introduction to Glasgow and the city. And I was just surprised by, I guess like the festival itself has a really, really strong culture. I, it was very evident. Uh, there was a huge group of kind of horror fans and, and kind of genre fans there. Um, it was, you know, really cool the way that they would, give out DVDs and do like questions and stuff like before every film, it kind of really, like I said, it gave a sense of community and, you know, it was amazing. Every time they would give out a DVD, they'd ask a question that I had no idea the answer to. And like, they'd be like, well, who is the actress in the 1975 film? Blah, blah, blah. And like 10 hands would go up and I'd be like, <laughs> okay, this is a group of people that know their stuff. Absolutely. It's a very, uh, very close knit, um, fan base indeed so uh we're sorry adam that, that that you weren't there to uh to join in the fun i know i know i got uh i i was very disappointed we're we're zach and i are sort of splitting up the festival uh, trips um so he got to go uh to scotland um but i'm right now in miami uh for the miami film festival so you know it's pretty nice here too but uh <laughs> Fantastic. I don't know. I don't know if it has. Yeah, I don't know if it has the true genre film fans that that Fright Fest does. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. I mean, it was a trip for me as well because uh, I live in London. But as you've probably gathered, uh, William is local to Glasgow. Yeah, um, and that was my first Fright Fest, and also my first festival that I wasn't working at. Um, so it was brilliant, and uh, I think to see the variety of films that you get at a film festival, it's such a bonus, and to have. Um, you, Zach, coming over and introducing the film and doing the Q&A afterwards, that's where being at a film festival really shines because there's this added little extra bit of context for uh, seeing the film and having it introduced by the filmmaker. So thank you very much for, for doing that. And um, Of course. It was also like, fun because in that theatre, like everyone stays there all day and watches all the movies together. So there's kind of a sense of, like, I was an audience member for most of the day and then got up and showed my movie. So it was kind of cool that idea that every it's most film festivals you know everyone just goes for one movie yeah and it was kind of cool that way yeah it was, a, it was a good sort of community spirit in that regard as well i really liked that you got to keep your seat for the whole time because you got to know the people around you and speak to each other and stuff and have opinions on the film so it worked that's really cool it's been amazing to travel around go to different film festivals and meet audiences really from around the world um and show them our our little passion project film that uh you know, we, 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 when we started making it, we weren't ever sure that anybody would ever see it. So this has just been a dream come true to kind of share it with, with audiences. Yeah, wonderful, and wonderful. And also the, 
the cool thing is like seeing how different countries react to it. And I have to say Glasgow's reaction was probably the best we've ever had. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, right. you know, people were ho- hooting and hollering and laughing, and you know, at all, at all the right moments. Um, and it was, it was pretty exciting to be there. Fabulous. So you premiered, you premiered the film at Toronto um, in September last year. What was it like showing it to an audience for the first time? It was pretty uh, overwhelming, sort of in a way that I, I don't know, that either of us really expected. Like we went to Toronto with the intention of selling the movie because, you know, we'd raised all this money and we needed to sell it at the Toronto Film Festival to get all the money back. So we were there sort of almost as business people more than as filmmakers because we were so like all our effort was going towards, you know, selling the movie. So I don't think we were like mentally prepared for like the audience reaction to the movie because <laughs> we were there on, as like business people. And then like, I know it started to like kind of creep up on us. Like we did the tech um, screening where they basically just, no one's in the theater and they just hit play to make sure that it works. And like both of us just like started crying, just seeing it up on this giant, you know, 80 foot screen in Toronto, kind of realizing, wait, this is actually like really happening. And then when you know it's sort of like those those scenes in in movies where like someone opens a play on broadway and then they're all going through the newspapers like that night to see if they have a hit or a, or a flop and you know all the press had been embargoed until that night so the movie came out and then all the reviews started coming out and it was so overwhelming that people were picking up on details that we kind of thought no one would ever notice or would ever care about um, and it just kind of, yeah, it just kept bringing us to tears because we were just sort of overwhelmed by the fact that people cared. Wow. I, I hope to experience that someday, I have to admit. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that sounds fantastic. Um, well, before we actually dig into the film Freaks itself, um, I'd like to find out a little bit more about both of your your backgrounds and how you came to be in the film industry and how you came to meet one another and stuff. So could you, could you maybe give us a little bit of a, a, a history, please? Absolutely. Um, we both sort of had different uh, paths getting into directing, um, but we, we intersected about 12 years ago and became uh, best friends and collaborators after that. Um, I started, I'm, I'm from the U S um, and I, uh, I started doing local theater when I was a kid um, as an actor um, and really got into it as a teenager. And I was kind of a, a drama geek, you know, singing musicals with all my friends um, growing up. And um, then started directing plays uh, when I uh, went to college, to university, and um, started making films there. Um, and really just fell in love with the process and moved to L.A. Um, after graduating from university, started working in post-production as an assistant editor, working on different TV shows, eventually working my way up to edit um, while I was still making tons of um, short films on the side. And um, went to film school, um, which was an interesting um, process, just a great way to get lots of experience and practice under my belt, um, although it's definitely not necessary. Um, and then uh, and then met Zach um, a few years after film school um, doing this uh, thing called On the Lot, which was a reality show competition um, uh, for filmmakers that Steven Spielberg produced. Um, so maybe we should we were be on in time um, and <laughs> get, get Zach's origin story, and then we'll pick it up um, yeah i have like in some ways the opposite i was born in canada and didn't go to film school i uh grew up my mom was a tv producer and just kind of single mom needed um you know free daycare so she placed me inside all her kids shows that she was making as an actor i kind of grew up on film sets around her and sleeping under the edit suite while she worked late at night and kind of just grew up in the film industry and all I ever wanted to do was make stuff and I acted mostly just so I didn't have to go to school and I could be on set and eventually made short films and made uh, just kind of did every job I could possibly find involved in film and editing and making websites and helping on visual effects and and volunteering and you know holding the boom and whatever I could do 
And uh, eventually I made a film that did really well in Vancouver. And that's the film that I used to get on, on the lot. And, uh, you know, everyone at that time that I knew knew about this show, the idea that Spielberg would be looking for undiscovered filmmakers out in the world uh, to give them a chance at competing against each other to make, <laughs> to, to basically get a job working with Spielberg. Everyone I knew was trying to get onto that show. And, um, you know, it was a very long process of sort of interviews and psychological evaluations and showing <laughs> different um, films that you'd made and making films for them basically to get into the top 50. And Adam and I were in the top 50 together. And actually that very first night that they put, they brought all 50 of us together they put Adam and I in the same hotel room because um, they kind of thought that we might get along. And, you know, we uh, kind of got to know each other and helped each other all the way through the process. And we actually made a pact with um, Adam, myself, and one other of the filmmakers, Sam, who was a friend that Adam knew from film school. And the three of us said, okay, even though we were against each other, we're going to be the final three. We're going to end one, two, and three right here. We're going to do it, guys. <laughs> we're going to help each other through it. And we ended up placing fifth, fourth, and third. Um, but the crazy thing is that at the Santa Barbara Film Festival, which just happened like a month ago, um, the that was the U.S. premiere of Freaks, and it was also the world premiere of Sam's movie called Baby Splitters that's amazing, and he won an award for the festival. And of all the filmmakers that went on that competition, um, we're kind of the ones – you know, a decade later that are out there making movies and we had all our, mo our movies have all their premieres at the same festival, which was pretty amazing, you know, a decade later. Yeah, it was a, it was such a fun and formative experience for all of us um, who were selected to, to be on that show. Um, it was very odd to be on a reality show and to be constantly be interviewed about your day-to-day -day life. Um, but it was also like sequestered. They locked us up, and you know we, we were only allowed to talk to your family for half an hour a week. And you had yeah, no they, internet. They confiscated our phones. We had no internet for the summer. Um, but it became kind of like a filmmaking summer camp. Um, we were just there to make short films, and we had to make a new short film every five days. Um, and it was just creative, you know, exploration basically. And for all of us, we got to work with more established crews than we had ever worked before, you know, union crews with DPs who had shot big things and stunt people and, you know, uh, you know, j just resources that we hadn't had access to in the past. And it opened a lot of doors for us afterwards. And then after that um, experience, we were able to get agents and, and stuff like that. Um, and we kind of took separate paths after that. We worked separately for, for a long time. Um, uh, I worked in uh, the comedy world. I worked for a, a late night show called Jimmy Kimmel Live doing comedy shorts for him. Um, I started directing commercials. Um, and Zach did some really cool uh, independent horror uh, features um, that he can talk about. Um, but we came together over the years to keep collaborating and worked on some smaller projects and then eventually decided to, to write this movie together. Um, Jack, do you have anything to add yeah. to that? I mean, we, you know, I, I would say kind of two things. One is that, you know, after On the Lot, you would think it's the world's best, you know, spotlight that you basically just made short films and had videos made about you for, you know, the whole world to see. Um, and it was an amazing moment, but then it ended up being sort of like the worst timing ever because there was a huge writing strike that happened right after and then the recession. <laughs> so the world yeah. basically just completely stopped. Uh, and no one, no one was hiring emerging filmmakers for like four or five years. So, because um, all the more experienced directors, you know, took all the lower down jobs because there were so few jobs. And so... I think we really struggled. We thought, you know, I had people saying, you'll be directing a $100 million movie in six months because it was such a, like, big moment. And I didn't work really for four years after that, um, trying to, you know, trying to work. We would be writing scripts and doing, you know, a little commercial here and there and, and doing meetings and hustling and putting pitch packages together and doing everything you can do to kind of get movies off the ground. Um, but just nothing happened. Uh, until really the world kind of got back on its legs and started you know, hiring new filmmakers again. Um, and in the end, that, those years of struggle actually were super valuable. I learned, I ended up learning 
so much so that by the time opportunity started coming again, I was so much more prepared for it and had had written many bad scripts and had kind of done many bad meetings and gotten all that stuff out of the way so that I was able to kind of start getting things going. And, and that's, you know, I, as Adam said, I, I did kind of a bunch of work for hire. So I started doing low budget horror films that, you know, I did a leprechaun reboot <laughs> that franchise and I, I did a zombie movie based on the dead rising video game and stuff like that. But all those, I think both of us, we felt like we had our own stories to tell and things where we were kind of the writers and the directors and that were kind of our voice and neither of us had really been able to do that. So when we were in LA together, we just kind of went on this long walk and said, okay, we've got to make a movie basically no matter what, because all the ones that we keep writing are movies that we can't make on our own. And a lot of this was inspired by a speech that Mark Duplass gave at, at South by Southwest. If anyone just looks up, Mark Duplass, South by Southwest. I think it's called like um, the Cavalry's not coming. And he gave this speech where he basically told filmmakers, "Stop trying to make movies that you can't make on your own. Think of what it is you have right now." He's like, "My first movie, I had a puffy chair in a van, and I made a movie about a puffy chair in a van, and I won the Sundance Film Festival." <laughs> so he's, like, <laughs> he's like, "With with like with like no money." He's like, "With five thousand dollars." He's like, "So think about what you have right now." Don't try and write a movie for ten million dollars if you don't have ten million dollars. And so yeah, that's, we, a, that's a common thing I see from um, from people who send me scripts. You know, friends of mine who are starting out say, "Hey, I just wrote the script. Will you read it for me?" And I and I read it, and sometimes they're quite good, but they're a movie you need. You know, you could never make this movie that I'm reading for less than fifty million. Um, and, and it makes sense because those may, that may be the kind of movie you hope to make someday. So that's the kind of movie you're writing now, but that, that path leads to heartbreak. Um, and Zach and, and I had had for us over and over again, <laughs> we've written many movies before freaks that never got made. And yet we spent years and years working on them because ultimately, um, those movies can only get made if they have big names attached and you're probably not a big name yet. Um, so the first thing they want to do is probably fire you and hire someone bigger. Um, yeah, which happened to both Adam and I on projects. So right at a moment where I was getting fired off sort of a dream project of mine, we said, we just went, okay, we have to write a movie that we can make no matter what. And what do we have? And we kind of surveyed our resources and, you know, we had a 5D and a, we had a microphone. So we had kind of like the basics of the film equipment. And Adam had a, had a house and his family has a restaurant and he had a son. So we said, okay, it's about two guys, a kid, a house and a restaurant. Uh, what can we tell with those resources? And that is the kind of beginning of the idea that became Freaks. Um, you know, in the end, many years later, as things kind of grew and grew, the role I was supposed to play got played by, you know, a two-time Oscar-nominated actor, Bruce Dern, and the dad role got played by Emil Hirsch, and it became a daughter instead of a son, and we ended up shooting it in Canada instead of Los Angeles. But the beginning of it was an idea that we could make no matter what. And so at every stage of the way, as, as it started kind of evolving, we could always say, okay, we, we can make the movie right now with what we have. If we get extra stuff, great, but we don't need it. And that's kind of what kept the ball rolling the whole time and allowed us to, you know, make the movie. Yeah. And, and the converse of that was really important too, that we had a couple moments where people offered us extra stuff, but with strings attached. And we had the experience to say no, because we knew that those strings that were attached could at some point halt the project if it you know went out of our control so for instance we had a really cool production company who loved the script and wanted to give us a big pile of money which sounds great <laughs> um, but, but they said all right we're gonna get we're gonna give you this congratulations we're gonna give you this money um, and this money but we want we want to hire a, a big star so this money is gonna go to making offers to big stars um, don't you want a big star in your movie? And we thought, you know, this is, this is great. This is great. And we kind of, you know, talked to them for a while and we actually 
contemplated making an offer to a big star with their pile of money. And then we just realized this is going to take months and months and months and a year to get these big stars to even read the script. And that's, we've been down this road before. That's where a movie like this then doesn't get made. Yeah. Um, so you know what? We want to just keep it scrappy, keep doing our own little thing. Thank you, but no, thank you. Oh, fabulous. No, I mean, that's, uh, what, what, a, what a great story and um, some really good advice in there as well for uh, for any would-be filmmakers listening because I know we have quite a few uh, you know independent filmmakers that uh, that tune into these these shows so um, that's good I've, I've got to ask though did you get to meet mr. Spielberg during that process <laughs> um, I, uh, I did uh, Doc, did you ever meet him no, I never got to meet him. He was, you know, shooting Indiana Jones while we were doing that. Um, so he wasn't really around. And then Adam got to meet him later. Right? I met him briefly, like, right after, like a couple months after, um, through a random series of events. And it was really cool. Um, I mean, it was just, you know, exciting because he actually knew who I was and remembered some of the films that I had made on, on the show. So even though he wasn't involved day to day, he was clearly watching and paying attention. Um, you know, he's, he hasn't hired us yet. Uh, <laughs> we're hoping he, he watches freaks. We, uh, tried to get it to him. Um, uh, haven't, haven't heard back yet. So, uh, we'll keep you posted on that. Um, but, yeah, he's of course, you know, been an inspiration of ours since we were kids so yeah absolutely absolutely in fact that that sort of leads into my next question and and sorry william i will let you get some questions in here um these guys are they're good absolutely now i i just wondered i mean uh obviously we're going to talk about freaks in a moment a little bit but um i was going to ask you know in terms of your inspirations growing up and whatever and the things that made you want to be filmmakers i mean any any particular um filmmaker or genre or anything that you want to talk about yeah i mean for me the my, my kind of really earliest memory of kind of realizing what film was was my mom had heard from a friend that this movie called Jurassic Park is really good and you should take Zach. Um, I was 10 years old at the time and had only ever seen like Disney movies. And so like, she takes me to like Jurassic Park, which for the first like hour traumatizes me and makes me so scared for my life. And I actually think like dinosaurs are going to eat me and kill me. And I'm like, you know, cowering and covering my eyes. But then this kind of moment happens where I remember realizing I'm still alive and kind of then becoming really disappointed that I missed all the cool stuff because I was scared and hiding and realizing that I missed all the dinosaurs. And then once the like velociraptors come back in the kitchen at the end, absolutely loving that whole part of it. Um, and just, that was kind of the moment where I realized like what movies are and what they could do, that they were this thing that rather they weren't real life, that they were a thing that you could experience and enjoy. And then, you know, for me, right around the age I was 13 is when the matrix came out a few years later. And for me, that was kind of right at the moment I was starting to make a, a movie every weekend with my friends. And so like every movie we made for like that summer was a ripoff of the matrix. Cause we just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, and that's kind of where my like love of visual effects came in because I just wanted to be able to do all those cool, amazing things to my own short films. Um, and then from there, you know, just action adventure, uh, you know, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, all the Spielberg kind of awesomeness um, ended up kind of being the type of stuff that, that I always loved. And, you know, and I got to discover all the Amblin stuff from the 80s. Awesome. Uh, I'm a bit older than Zach. Um, so I was sort of the VHS uh, kid and <laughs> had, you know, so many memories of renting movies and bootlegging them with uh, my dad's camcorder and our, and our VCR to try to you know, make, make copies to build up our, our library of movies. Um, Star Wars was probably the tape that got worn out the most. 
um, you know, the, the original trilogy and then uh, all the Spielberg movies. But then kind of when I was a teenager discovering the Coen brothers, um, Terry Gilliam, um, uh, the Monty Python guys, um, and Soderbergh, um, it was really Tarantino, you know, seeing Pulp Fiction in the theater when I was a teenager was sort of like mind blowing. Um, well, I remember Pulp Fiction for me was like a friend of mine who was like sort of the bad kid was like, who had like sort of a single mom that was never around. And like, he had this like VHS of Pulp Fiction and he's like, Hey guys, check this out and like put it on. <laughs> and I remember it like, that was the first time I ever saw like a movie, like basically what an adult indie movie, I guess you would call it. Like everything else I'd ever seen was like a spectacle, you know, kids adventure thing. And so seeing Pulp Fiction, however old I was at that point, like 12 or something, like blew my mind again. I was like, oh, wait, there's like this whole other type of movie that's like cool and crazy and interesting and like nonlinear. And like, so that movie kind of blew my mind. God, it sounds like you and me, really, doesn't it, William? <laughs> yeah, best sort of conversation of the weekend, yeah. <laughs> and I think we're about the, you know, same equivalent ages to you guys by the sounds you know so yeah (laughs) excellent well i I was wondering if i can uh ask you guys a question um adam you were having a a background in editing um feature films and zach you uh, were speaking about your vfx background at fright fest wondered how your sort of knowledge and experience in these departments impacts the process when you're like writing the film and shooting the film it's enormous. Um, we and, and I think that's one of the reasons we uh, collaborate so well together because we both understand that part of the process. And we in the writing stage, it's really um, it's really important. And and having the experience of putting movies together, you kind of know, I think, how a movie can be structured and. Um, and all that, but you also, I think, know what you don't know because a big part of the editing process is discovering things. So when Especially we're on set, mistakes or things that are missing. <laughs> yeah. So we're open to we're open to knowing that we don't know everything yet, um, because we've edited. We know that every time you think you know what you're doing in the editing room, you realize there are things missing and mistakes and problems that uh, or new discoveries. Or you realize. Yeah, you realize the scene is, isn't actually about that, or the movie isn't even about what you thought it was about. Now that you're seeing the movie, it's actually about this. And oh, we've got to restructure this and have way less. This is what we thought was so important is is already well established, and we don't need to do that ten times. We just we only need to do it once. And you know, you just learn so much. Have a really good understanding of like how to plan for a shoot and how to how to get the footage you need but then also how to be open to new discoveries. So I think that's a really cool thing about editing, having that editing experience. Yeah. Zach's VFX experience, I think, is essential for, for the DNA of what Freaks became. Right. Um, understanding what we could accomplish in the sci-fi world at a, at a zero price point, basically. Um, yeah. And structuring the movie to... Uh, like the puffy chair example, knowing what we could, what we had going in, um, what what resources on the VFX side we could accomplish, and writing the script to make that fit. Totally, yeah. There's a lot of huge pieces of the film that are that were in the script stage, designed because we knew that those are things that we can do relatively simply, but they will look spectacular. Um, but also that that skill set also comes in hugely uh, beneficial when you're shooting and something goes wrong. There was one really key moment when we were filming in the art department and it was at the end of the shoot. We'd run out of money. Everyone was tired. (laughs) The art department was supposed to like build this giant, like huge giant door. Uh, And it was just like not going to be ready. And they kept saying it'd be ready. And it just like an hour before we're like, this clearly is not going to be ready. And it was like half built and it was just like, okay, just tear it down and put up a green screen. And everyone's kind of like, but how is that going to work? I'm like, trust me, it's going to work. Just put up a green screen right here. And if we shoot from this angle, we can make a door in the computer and we'll figure it out later. Like we don't, someone will make this door for us. And if, as long as we shoot it in this way, it'll be fine. And 
we ended up doing that and it's one of the coolest shots in the movie um and you know at, in that moment of crisis it was very good to be able to know that that was a solution yeah yeah and um you know the editing experience or the editing background i think after we write the script and we're planning how to shoot it um zach and i do extremely detailed shot lists um with every shot that we're going to get um during our shoot day and then um ordering them using this this app. <laughs> so uh, zach also created an app called shot lister because he's so um organized about shot lists <laughs> anal um, uh, it is the is the best shot listing app. Um, it, it allows you to organize your shots and then also set um, times time you know the time you're going to allow for each shot. And then on the shot shoot day, it counts you down and tells you how on track you are. Um, wow! And um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a very yeah. valuable tool. Okay, we'll, we'll yeah, have well, to get you to plug that before the end of the podcast, for sure. For sure. Hey, well, <laughs> we can, check out Shotlister on the iTunes store. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We have uh, free copies to give away, so figure out a way for your, uh, you know, figure out some way to give it to your to your listeners, and we'll give you a bunch. Oh, sounds um, interesting. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> actually, actually, feeding into what, you're, what you were talking about there as well is, um, I just wondered, so... How does that work then in terms of co-directing? How, how do you tend to work on... Because obviously you work together through the writing and the prep, like you said, and of course your, your various experiences help you in the post-production process as well. But what, what about when you're actually on set? I mean, is it, is it one of you deals more with the, you know, you know, the camera and team and the others deal with the actors or or what how does that tend to work we kind of do we we basically do all the work but are very aware we don't really we're always doing both and we kind of we kind of split off so usually what's happening is like one of us will block the scene uh you know adam and i will have already gotten to set an hour early and walked through every shot of the day and all the blocking of the day so that basically we, as a unit, are as on the same page as we possibly can in the actual space, because um, things always change once you actually get into the room. Everything, um, and then one of us will kind of block the scene with the actors and the crew, and the other one will will kind of uh, stay back so that there's sort of one voice. Um, and then whoever kind of blocked the scene will probably be the one who then is sort of the voice to the crew for that scene. So, and usually they'll stand up next to the camera next to the actors and the other one of us kind of lurks like the phantom of the opera in the background uh watching in their ear (laughs) you got to say this and kind of watching the monitors because it's really helpful to be up next to the camera with the actors but you kind of lose your omnipresence as a director and but if you're always back at the monitors you kind of lose touch with the set and the actors and the operators so it's been really great to be able to have one of us in each place we kind of rotate back and forth depending on a lot of stuff, depending on, you know, what the type of scene is or which one of us is tired or what's ever going on. If one of us has to go off and do something, sometimes one of us does that. But basically, we're, we're both doing all the jobs, but trying to always be aware, specifically on set, that kind of one of us is the voice. And we've had to learn a lot of little things along the way. Like, for example, when one of us goes off to deal with something, when you come back to set, you might, like I might come back to set and suddenly the camera's over here on the right and we'd always thought it would be on the left when we last talked. And I'll be like, oh, I used to walk up to that person and be like, hey, uh, you're not supposed to be over here, you're supposed to be over there. And then they'll say, oh, your director, your other co-director just told me to put it over here. Like, oh, really? And so now what we do is every time one of us comes back to set, we check in with the other the other director before saying or doing anything because you have no idea what's happened while you were gone (laughs) and things change and evolve very quickly. Um, And our last production, we actually had our own walkie talkies so that with our own channel, so that as we got separated or sometimes you're on a really big set, that's really far apart. We could actually talk to each other, you know, keep each other up to date whenever we are separated. So it's just basic, the basics of it are we try and communicate with one voice um, and do a lot of work on our own to kind of make sure we're on the same page. Um, but you know, there's always times where we see things differently and, and we just kind of 
work it out together to figure that out. Well, and those are some of the most interesting times, actually, because when we um, when we're on the same page and we're we're using the same brain, basically, it it's very it's very easy um, and and very you know fun and and basically like you're getting to you're getting to mind meld with with you know your best friend so that's really kind of fun and then those 10% of times where we disagree um can be jarring because whoa whoa i thought we were mind mel- melded um but uh it always leads to creatively exciting um developments and evolutions oh shit you were seeing it this way i was seeing it this way the, what no that's impossible and we go off into a corner and we kind of hash it out and we always realize that there's something of benefit in the other person's perspective and we come to a third way that neither of us would have thought about on our own but is better than what either of us initially pictured so it, it's led to some really great um you know creative kind of um additional additions uh, yeah and usually having two brains usually it's also something's usually broken with the script as well that we didn't realize <laughs> if that happens. Like if we've gotten to the point where we're on set and we both saw something that different, then it, usually it's, it's highlighted some inconsistency in the script um, that both of us were sort of unaware of. So it's always yeah. helpful. Or, or that there'll be a, one of the things Zach um, does that I, I find very helpful is, He'll say, well, what, what was important to you about the way you were seeing it? Because I was seeing it a different way. What, what's, why are you uh, fighting for this? And, you know, well, oh, I, I, I think it's really important we see into our eyes. We can't be moving the camera all around. we got to see into our eyes in this moment. And Zach will say, oh, well, because I really think it's important to move the camera around her to get that feeling of disorientation. Oh, okay. Well, if we did this, this other thing, we would get both. And that's way better than what either of us had originally. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's been really exciting and really fun. Sometimes it almost feels like we have a directing superpower by having two of us Um, (laughs) because, you know, one of us can be getting really emotional next to the actors while the other one is, is by the monitor, um, you know, making sure that, Camera A and camera B both got the perfect shot (laughs) that we had envisioned. And there would have been no way to do that if there was just one of us, you know? Um, So it's, it's quite fun. Cool. Okay. Well, um, that's great. Uh, Before we get into sort of a spoiler free uh, discussion about freaks, because obviously it doesn't have a uh, release, or it's not released here in the UK just yet. So, um, but before that, uh, William, is is there anything else before we get into that that you want to ask these guys? Yeah, there was there was one thing, and it, it can be as brief as as you want. Um, Zach, I wondered if you know, being a, a child on film sets and being a, an actor when you were younger. I wonder how that helped uh, directing Lexi and what that kind of experience was like, because she was the standout element of the film for me. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Adam and I have both done a lot of work with kids. We've done part of our day jobs has been working on Disney stuff. And we've, you know, we've learned a lot about working with kids. And in some ways, working with kids has been sort of a joy. (laughs) Like it's been because they're so open and so ready to just kind of do anything. Um, Whereas, you know, sometimes adults, they have their own, a lot of their own opinions. Um, and so with kids, we, we've always taken an approach and, and, you know, it helps having remembered what it was like to be a kid on set. But the, th- the main thing is um, kids often come super duper rehearsed because um, the parents kind of treat it like homework. So right. they, they will like study their lines like, over and over and over again to the point where like no matter what direction you give them it sounds exactly the same so like they'll be like and it kind of has like a sing-song yeah tone they, to it. they be, memorize it like a song and they forget the meaning behind it yeah so they'll say like dad i don't want to and you'll be like okay well we'll say it with some anger dad i don't want to and you're like okay we'll say it really sad whisper it dad i don't want to and you're like 
you just have to like, we have all these different ways of kind of breaking them out of that. Um, most of it has to do with um, connecting it to real stuff from their life. So we'll say, okay, let's throw up the script for a second and let's just uh, improvise something just to kind of get in the mode, get in the mood. And we'll like, we'll kind of know something from their life and we'll just start improvising that. Might not even have anything to do with the scene that we're doing. It'll have some emotional, you know, connection to it, but not necessarily the lines won't make any sense. And then we'll just say, okay, now let's improvise the scene, but without the dialogue, but just with that emotion. And then eventually we'll say, okay, now say this line, which was the line that was from the scene. And it'll come out totally natural and real. Um, and, you know, there's lots of other things, but basically it's always just kind of trying to break them out of that, you know, with Lexi in particular, because we wanted the film to feel super duper natural. You know, it's different than our Disney stuff. We didn't even really tell her to look at the script that carefully. We just told her, like, just the night before, open up this, the scenes for the next day and just kind of read them once or twice. Don't memorize them. Just sort of, like, become familiar with what they're about and then close the script. And we'll take we'll figure out the rest on set. which and that was which just she a, like, really liked because she's seven years old and she doesn't want to <laughs> do homework. Yeah, <laughs> and we told her parents too. We're like, please, I know you always want to make her. She's super prepared and like has every line down. But that's not the, what that's not what this movie is about. It's about naturalness. So don't over rehearse her. Don't you know force force her to to kind of know every line by heart. Um, and they were on board with that, so it all worked out. Cool. Yeah, I mean, not every kid can do that. Um, some, you know, it, we, but it's something we we looked for in the audition process for this movie. Um, improv in general is such a useful tool for kids and adults because it it gets gets that sing song thing out of your system when you're no longer allowed to say those same lines. Like you can't sing it the same way that you've memorized it. So. Yeah, breaking out of that pattern is is key. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, I mean, um, le that leads us quite nicely into, you know, what what can you tell us about freaks for our listeners out there? It's a t very twisty. The reason we're being so cagey is because there's a lot of <laughs> twists and uh, surprises in the film. It's a bit of a mystery, um, but it's a sci-fi thriller um, starring a seven-year-old girl named Chloe who's been trapped all her life inside a dilapidated house um, by this man who is her father. Um, or at least he says he's her father. You know, sometimes in the beginning of the movie, you're not sure. Um, and he's saying, you can't go outside, you can't even look outside, or the bad guys will kill you. Um, and you're not sure whether to trust him or not, but uh, there's, there's weird things going on inside the house as well. There's sort of... Uh, terrifying apparitions that appear in her room. There's a mysterious, um, creepy ice cream truck that's passing by her house, trying to coax her to come outside. And eventually, 20 minutes into the movie, she um, decides to disobey her father, goes outside to get ice cream, and launches her on a, on a surreal and dangerous adventure in which she realizes her dad wasn't lying to her. Um, it really is dangerous out there and the setup for the first half hour of the movie. And it goes a little bit bonkers after that. Um, and <laughs> unpredictable places, um, but it all makes sense in the end. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, it was very enjoyable, but <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and what is, um, you know, what is the current plan in terms of distribution and everything for the film? The film's getting a theatrical uh, release in the U.S., um, uh, kind of a small release, and then every other country is doing its own thing. Uh, Universal's distributing it in the U.K. Um, I think there's, uh, and it'll probably be in the summer. Um, it's coming out in theaters in the summer, in August probably, uh, in the U.S. So in the U.K. it'll probably be at the same time or just after. It might be slightly in the fall, but basically, uh, and we don't know quite yet what Universal's doing. They might um, do a few theaters uh, with VOD at the same time, or just VOD? We're not we're not totally sure yet. They're they're still figuring that out. But the reaction August, from Glasgow August September timeframe. Yeah, yeah, Glasgow was just this explosion of of really positive reviews, and and we sent them all to Universal. <laughs> so hopefully uh, that you know gets them really excited, and they're they've been really psyched about the movie. So um, it'll be cool to see you know how it all comes together. But yeah. 
it will be coming out in some way later this year. Wonderful. And, and what was it like to uh, work with, you know, the legend that is Bruce Dern? Uh, Bruce Dern is such an amazing actor and character. Um, and he plays um, a character named Mr. Snowcone in the movie, who is the one who's driving the mysterious, creepy ice cream truck outside of Chloe's house. And, um, you know, she, when she goes outside, he coaxes her to come onto the ice cream truck, um, leading her onto a, uh, uh, an adventure um, that will uh, be full of uh, danger and revenge and blood. Um, and Bruce was, uh, I mean, he's just an incredible um, storyteller. He's, had a, he's 82, and he's been acting since he was 17. Um, and so he's worked with everyone and knows everyone and has stories that he is glad to tell you about everyone from Elliot Kazan, who gave him his first role on in New York, um, to Hitchcock, to Kubrick, to Spielberg, to, um, anyone you can mention he has a story about. Um, and our first lunch with Bruce after he had read the script and wanted to meet us, uh, was a six hour lunch. Uh, where he was just talking nonstop, staring deeply into our eyes um, in the most intense way you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and it, it just kind of went from there. I mean, he, he, uh, he hasn't done a science fiction film since 1972, and he did Silent Running. Um, so for 45 years of his 70-year uh, career, he, he didn't do science fiction. And he told us that was because he he loves playing real characters. He doesn't want to do bullshit. He doesn't want to do fake, you know, garbage that is just you know robots flying around in space, which was his his last film. Um, he wants to play real people with gritty uh, issues of of emotion. Um, that's what he gets most excited about. Um, and, you know, I think he has a kind of dated understanding of what sci-fi can be. Um, but we were lucky that he saw, uh, he saw that in our film uh, and really kind of sunk his teeth into the emotional desire to, um, you know, save his daughter and, 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 and protect his family, which is what that character is all about. And uh, the the way that you the way that you um, present the opening of the film, um, there's so much information withheld that the reality of what's going on you've made it seem really natural, seem really realistic, uh, and I was totally guessing what was going on for far longer than I should have been. Um, I, I didn't, I couldn't see where it was going, and that's that's I think really difficult to achieve. How do you guys figure out how much to to show and how much to tell the audience and how much to keep back and, and not divulge till you're ready to. Yeah, we're really um, excited about that uh, experience. Some of our favorite movie going experiences as film lovers have been um, when we, when we don't know where a film is going, where you're just emotionally invested, but you have no idea where this story is going to take you. Um, and that's, it's so rare to have that, that feeling, that experience, because so much of what we see nowadays is very predictable. You know, you go to see, um, many different types of movies and within the first five or 10 minutes, you, you're pretty sure, you know, where it's going to end. Um, and for instance, when I saw Pulp Fiction as a, whatever teenager I was, I think I was probably like 14 or 13. I, my mind was blown because I had no idea where this movie was going. I had never seen anything like it. and I couldn't predict where it was going. Um, another example we talk about a lot. Um, I remember seeing Truman Show in the theater. Um, but I had missed the first five minutes of the movie. I, I had walked in late. And in the first five minutes of Truman Show, they explain – what's going on with this guy under a dome where they're filming him every day. And then they start, you know, then you are in, are in his life. Um, but I missed the explanation. So I, I sat down in the theater and this guy was living in this surreal world where 
everyone seemed to be possessed or or body snatched or watching him or I had no idea what was going on and try that experience of living in the character's world and figuring it out as he's figuring it out was so delicious to me and and that's and that was also kind one of, of our inspirations yeah I mean we really the whole movie is told from the little girl Chloe her perspective so every scene we decided like what does she know here what is she seeing here um so it's a very subjective movie even all the camera angles are shot from her height um so that all the adults you know you're looking up their noses and stuff and so all of that was basically to to create a very subjective experience and that leads to the film being mysterious because she doesn't know a lot of things at the beginning and so the audience kind of only learns things as she learns things um, and so I think that's why it works in the movie because it's very authentic to to the story. It's not being mysterious to kind of be mysterious. It's doing it because the character is is trying to figure it out. Um, and so it's not sort of like an M Night Shyamalan movie where it's like trying to divert you. It's doing it because the the character is trying to like learn what's going on and has different theories. And the other kind of cool part of that is people have called the movie sort of the kitchen sink of genre because it has um, all sorts of different genres all mixed together. At the beginning, it feels like a total horror film. And then, it, you know, and it, and all of that is because we wanted whatever she's experiencing to be kind of how the movie feels. So when she's scared, it feels like a horror film. And when she's full of wonder, it feels like a Spielberg movie. And when she's full of bloodlust, it feels like a Tarantino movie. <laughs> so, you know, it all kind of comes from her perspective. Yes. Yeah, that, that was one of the... Um again the strong things about the narrative on this is that uh you know we the audience are very much uh you know taken through this story from from her perspective and um y y you know i i think you guys accomplished that really well and and definitely uh it kept you absolutely intrigued as to where everything was going from start to finish you know <laughs> yeah we in those early conversations when we were talking about what do we have to we, to make this movie and we started talking about my son we were just so intrigued by how he was learning about the world and interpreting the world um and how things that were very normal to us like a car alarm going off down the street were terrifying to him and things that were fantastical like the existence of monsters he totally believed in so we, we started talking about how, what would it be like if you, if you were a kid, but growing up in a, in a world of science fiction and trying to figure out what was real and what isn't and who was what, <laughs> what would that feel like to a kid? And, and then what if you had gave the audience that experience of being that kid, trying to, trying to make sense of this world? Um, so that was kind of our initial nugget of inspiration for the movie. And it's so much fun to be with an audience and, and, and see them experience that and, and try to figure out the movie. We had fun watching it and, and having that experience. Definitely. It was like, it was really exciting, especially the opening sequence as well. I mean, at a horror film festival definitely was an appropriate place to screen it. I mean, the, the, the kind of, conventions that are are you're using uh, at the beginning they they are really tense and i definitely want to see this film a, a second time when it when it comes out on release um just to try and and, and figure out what you were getting up to and what you were doing. <laughs> well that's the really fun thing a lot of people you know i think something i'm really proud about the movie is that it's a very rich second watch because the first time when you're watching it there's all these things happening that you don't understand but they they set a tone and are really weird and kind of crazy and you're trying to piece it all together. And then slowly over the course of the movie, you, you kind of piece it all together and understand what's going on. And then it kicks into the third act. But when you watch it a second time, we, we worked really hard to make sure that everything that happens at the beginning, once you understand the premise, all makes sense. Um, it, it wasn't just weird, crazy shit to be scary. <laughs> like it's all like actually part of what, is actually happening and so i think it's a really rich second watch because there's so much of the world that then makes sense 
even small stuff with like the sound design and stuff um, yeah. that really kind of comes into play the second time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I want to watch it a second time as well because, you know, it's like it's like films like, you know, Total Recall or whatever. After you've watched it once, you can watch it the next time from a di- completely different perspective and, and, you know, see those things. And I think one of the things you did in this, and again, without getting into um, spoilers and whatever, but you, you did a very good job of the world building of, of this particular um, universe that you set up. Um, you know, are there plans to expand on this further? Is that anything you can talk about there? Yeah, I mean, we love the world um, as well. And we had we had so many ideas for other stories in this world. But we had to be very um, focused for this movie because of our low budget. Um, and we're hoping uh, that we can, you know, kind of tell a story of what happens next and expand the world. Um, partly that depends on how, if people go to see the movie, <laughs> um, you know, if it's successful in some way, um, then that becomes more likely. But um We've had some interest and some people talking to us about potentially developing um, a a sequel TV series to kind of um, continue the story of the world and and uh, expand it. Wow, that'd be cool, particularly in this sort of uh, TV rich environment that we live in for art based storytelling and whatever. So that that would be really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be a dream. Um, So. Uh, yeah, tell your friends, go see the movie and maybe, maybe we'll be able to, to make that happen for you. Um, you, you had asked a question earlier about how did we determine how much to reveal and when, um, and we had a really interesting experience, um, when, and, and inspiration for the process of, of writing the film. We've been, uh, inspired by Pixar and the way they kind of, do a lot of iterations of their movies um, to hone them and and really make them great. I mean, they they have pretty much uh, as consistent a track record as you can imagine in this industry for making good good films. Um, and they do that by really revising and revising and revising with very candid feedback. Um, so we we tried to do that in the script stage and in the editing stage. Um, especially in relates to the mystery because we knew all the answers. So we didn't know how that was coming across to an audience. And we did five or six staged readings of the script with our friends reading the roles, um, you know, just sitting around a room uh, for a small audience to kind of see how the different drafts of the script were reading. And And the first time we did one of those, you know, everyone was like, so what happened? <laughs> like they had no idea. We thought the reveals were obvious, and nobody got it. Um, so that was very educational. Um, and then in the editing process, did it again and again and again. Every week, basically, we we would edit all week, and then on the weekend, show the film to to a couple small groups of people and get feedback, so that we could keep honing it. Um, the interesting thing, I think, the most interesting thing I learned through that process is that everyone picks up on different amounts of what's going on. So like, it's not that like at this point, a hundred percent of the audience now understands something. It's sort of like a moving bell curve. So hence early on will be picked up by like 25% of the audience and 75% are still in the dark. And then by this point in the movie, probably 75% of the audience has learned that element, but 25% still haven't. And then by this point in the movie, you know, everyone has. So it's, you have to kind of almost think of it as these parallel movies that are being experienced. Um, you know, we have a lot of different elements to our movie and and everyone is picking up on different parts of it um, as it goes along. So, and you're sort of, I, what I kind of learned was like, you can't say, okay, well, we're only making the movie for this 25%. You kind of have to think of how is the movie being experienced by everyone at, at different levels of, kind of awareness because everyone has different you know cues that they when they watch a movie and other and some people just watch movies with different awareness like we would we would put cues in the sound design and realize that most people don't hear that they don't the sound design goes into their ears but it doesn't like 
the analytical part of the brain doesn't realize that that's important to the plot. <laughs> Whereas we, as filmmakers, we know every sound, you know, so well, we assume that th that's very powerful, but it only really affects like 20% of the people. And so we would early on, we'd rely on sound to like tell the story, but most people would, would not see those details. So that was pretty interesting to learn. Cool. Um, I actually have to get going, but Adam can take up. No, uh, keep answering questions if you guys have any. <laughs> no, that, that, that's fine. I mean, we really, we really appreciate um, the time you've given us. So, uh, yeah, I should have checked at the beginning what your uh, what your time availability <laughs> was. Um, so, real quick, then before we wrap up on that, uh, I want to ask you know what, what is next for you, and you know, obviously, where can people if they want to find out more um, accomplish that. Absolutely. Um, well, we're writing actually a pilot episode of the of the Freaks uh, TV uh, spinoff that we mentioned. Uh, we'll see if anything comes of that. Um, we're also uh, we, have, we we mentioned we've done a lot of work with Disney. We've recently come up with an idea for a, a movie for for them for their new streaming service that they're launching. So we're going to be writing that for them, um, which will be very fun in that kind of. Amblin and Spielberg sort of tone. Um, and uh, in terms of Freaks, you know, it's it's being released in August, September. We have a website at freaksfilm.com um, or we're on it's at Twitter. Film festivals Instagram. all around the world, um, like almost every week it's at a different film festival. So, yeah, from now until it's released, it'll be playing at, at film festivals in various, you know, countries around the world. So, um, if you check our website or go to um, Twitter or Instagram, we're at Freaks the Film on those sites. Um, and uh, we're very grateful that you uh, took the time to talk to us about our our little movie. Um, thank you for caring <laughs> about it enough, <laughs> to, enough to discuss it for an hour. Oh, we yeah. we, we certainly care, and uh, thank you so much for for your time today, um, William. Yes. Where can people find you if they want to find out more of your work? I am on, uh, I'm on Twitter at WAS underscore MCL, um, and you can find me there. Okay, and you can find my work if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, that's E-Y-L-E-S, as in my last name. You can see some short films that I've written, produced, and directed there. Um, you can find this podcast at Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all good podcasting apps. And you can find out more about Premier Scene at premierscene.net. So thank you very much uh, again to our guests. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode on Freaks. Gabba, gabba, weeks, weeks, one of us. Gabba, gabba, weeks, weeks, one of us.